Hi, I'm Tracy Koga, and thanks for downloading this podcast from ilikehugh.com. If you can, give us a follow or subscribe. And remember that all the information about the guests in today's episode can be found at ilikehugh.com. Now, let's get started. Good morning, everybody. It is the Hugh virtual chat, and my voice sounds maybe a little bit heavy, sad, maybe a combination of everything. It's very gray to outside, not bright sunshine like it has been in the past few days. And I'm sure everybody has their own thoughts and feelings on what's happening in this world right now. And we're not talking isolation, COVID-19 pandemic. We're talking about anger, frustration, racism, violence. I don't know the answer, but I feel positive we'll get to the end of the tunnel and into the light together. And so having said that, today we're talking a lot about celebrating, celebrating, celebrating life, culture, your own ethnicity. Uh, Bokarama is one of our, well, it is our largest summer festival. And like so many other festivals, of course, Bokarama decided to cancel this year. But we'll find out on how many different ways we can celebrate this multicultural festival in a different way. And then my good friend Cynthia, all the way from Colombia, is joining in on the Zoom today. She's going to show us how we can all celebrate Pride Week in our own very special way, too, in this new, new way of life. So let's open up the Zoom and welcome all the ladies. Hello, everybody. Hi. Welcome. Oh, yes. Oh, my gosh. Susie, I love your coat or jacket or... or <laughs> <laughs> it is amazing. Oh, hi. Cynthia, my goodness, where are you? It looks like you're in a library. No, just still in my room. Great background, though. <laughs> yeah. You know, it reminds me of, we were actually, uh, a year ago to this day, we were in Portugal. Uh, we were actually in the Algarve, but we were in Porto before. And that's where the Harry Potter library is, where J.K. Rowling grew up and where she based the Harry Potter books on this library. And that's what it reminded me of. It's amazing. It had that double spiral wooden staircase, stained glass windows. Oh, you know, um, I don't know about all of you, but to think about happier times and, and times where things were so much different than they are right now. Um, I might start with Charlotte and Kirsten. I'm a little... I'm a little sad. I'm, I'm kind of like feeling a little like how Susie was, you know, the other day. Um, just a little like, what's going on? I, and very and very confused on, uh, even no, even confused on what the right thing is to say these days. I, it may sound strange, but um, so I can. I can say that I think a lot of people are feeling what you're feeling, Tracy, and that it is okay not to know what to say or what to think or whatever. And if you don't know what to think and what to say, the best thing you can do is listen to people from the communities that are experiencing this firsthand, what they have to say. So today on social media, you'll see um, 
a lot of uh, uh, blackout posts basically um, started by uh, the music industry and talking about the show must be paused. And um, that gives us the opportunity to amplify and to share the voices of women and of people in the black community to share what they are experiencing and what they need us to know. So this is a learning opportunity for everybody to really sit in your uncomfortable silence and listen to what other people have to say and listen to their lived experience. Uncomfortable silence is okay. Sometimes saying nothing, I know a lot of people say saying silence is, um, or silence is uh, complicity. And I don't think that's necessarily true because sometimes if you don't know what to say or you don't understand the issues, you need to educate yourself. And that is okay. To become educated, to learn, to listen, those are all good things. Sometimes people who don't have that lived experience saying nothing is the gift that you can give by educating yourself. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you. And I want to say welcome to, we've got some guests here. Welcome back, Tina and Melinda. And Nina, do you want to give away to you? Hi, Nina. Nice to meet you. And hi, Primrose. It's been a while. I'm so happy to see you. Yes, so we're, we're going to actually, uh, ladies, talk a little bit first about some festivals. So um, first of all, uh, with Cynthia, Pride Week, and I know that, again, it's one of those things where it's all new to us. So um, fill us in on how we can celebrate. Yeah. Um, well, I shared um, 10 ideas um, that, you know, how to deal with it. And of course, this was before, um, as Susie, um, you know, so, so well put, um, kind of the current situation. And, and like you, I, I mean, I, I, I struggle in this era of wanting to celebrate pride and so forth, but to be aware of my brothers, sisters, and siblings in the BIPOC community um, who are experiencing a completely different environment than myself. Um, you know, so to them, I, I am shutting up and listening as I'm trying to figure out what to say and how to say it. Um, for those that are looking to celebrate, um, some of the ideas that I put together was um, glitter goes with everything. Um, and so um, I'm actually traveling with uh, a, a particular major vendors glitter pack from last year and certainly use it to spice things up. And pride is always a wonderful time for glitter. Um, you know, listening and reflecting, um, learning how to accept. And if you are accepting, but you don't get it, then asking the questions and, and listening so that you understand, um, which follows the acceptance um, piece. And, um, you know, finally, the, the last piece I'll touch on was to dance, like just to let go to all of this emotion and everything that we're feeling and just to let it out. And there's so many amazing uh, playlists that are um, on Spotify and Apple playlists, etc., cetera, um, that allow us to express ourselves. And certainly um, I think we're all feeling uh, this internal angst and, and uh, just struggling to deal with it. And sometimes we just need to clear that out. And um, for me, dance is how I do that. So 
um, leave it there. But um, I did come up with 10 ideas that's sitting on my, um, on my blog that folks can read, but um, we'll kind of leave it there as I know we've got lots of uh, great folks to hear from. So thanks. Well, we'll definitely come back to you. Uh, so Nina, welcome. Uh, I had reached out to Tina and Melinda because Folkorama, I get once again, one of the biggest festivals canceled. It's dear and near and dear to my heart, covering it and also volunteering. But yourself too this year, uh, how, how are you kind of, I guess, celebrating Folkorama? And I know I made a, a couple of notes that Folkorama is trying to do kind of a, a new kind of way to celebrate too as well. And maybe you can shed more light on that too. Absolutely. Hi, thanks so much for having me on this show. It's really great to be here this morning. Um, in terms of celebrating Folklorama, I'd say that Folklorama isn't limited to just that one week in August where we all get together, but um, being part of the Chinese community and celebrating my Chinese identity is something I do year long. So I definitely say that there's a lot of opportunity now to reflect on what that means and how I'm able to continuously celebrate my Chinese heritage um, in spite of Folklorama being canceled. But COVID-19 has definitely made me reflect on how to do that and what it means um, in particular now to be Chinese um, and what my relationship is to COVID-19 and the community to continue strengthening it and fighting for um, justice and just better recognition of what's going on right now. What were some of the, I guess, difficulties in the beginning or have you seen, uh, Nina, you know, we had, we had talked about the racism and, you know, the just, you know, the anti-discrimination campaign um, and now all of this happening throughout the world. How has this changed you and, and the Chinese community? I'd like to say that it has brought us together in recognizing that, you know, um, initially the movement was very much like, let's recognize that we're all human. Like the virus affects everybody. Um, it's not limited to race. So let's bond together um, and, and try and, you know, get through this virus together. But as that sentiment becomes lost, I think that it's more important for us to realize that there are inequities and differences in how people are experiencing this virus um, and to really think about what togetherness means in this moment um, and to go forward recognizing that you know we need to address those inequalities um, and this discrimination that's being faced by minorities and, and of marginalized communities in order for us to meaningfully move past this virus and come to a better point after it. Right. Tina, I, yes, and you're heavily involved in Folkorama, and I know all the ladies here know, but maybe for our listeners and the others that are going to be watching this video, Folkorama was started in 1970 as just a one-off event, and uh, you just celebrated 50 years last year, and a record-breaking year for attendance, and then we're talking thousands and thousands of visitors that come into our city for those two weeks. And um, it's always a wonderful time to reconnect. But Tina, you've been so involved with this 
and there was talk because 50 years of the same kind of festival, wow, maybe isn't it time to kind of change it up well? <laughs> Careful what you ask for. <laughs> because it is looking a lot different, isn't it? Yeah, I, you know, it will be a very interesting summer, I think, for us, for many of the ethnocultural communities across the city. And, you know, when I think about my experience with the Chinese community um, from the, I came to Winnipeg about 20 years ago, and the moment I first came, I met someone in the Chinese community, and she instantly, it happened to be the summer, so she took me to Folklorama, and I think, you know, I've, to the Chinese pavilion, and I, you know, have been part of our organizing of it ever since. Um, but, you know, I've been thinking particularly in the last few days a little bit about what were the roots of the original Folklorama Festival. And, you know, we've seen its transformation like so many festivals and, you know, like Cynthia's talked about with Pride Festivals, the transformation from being these really grassroots, politically engaged and activist um, festivals and to the way that both, you know, out of necessity, but also as they grow and communities grow and express themselves differently, the way that the corporation and corporatization becomes part of those festivals as well. And, you know, particularly as I look at, you know, what's happening currently, I've been thinking a lot about the way that anti-racism was at the foundation of Folklorama from its very beginnings. And in many ways, providing a space for communities to say that they had pride in their culture and to empower communities to do that and to express themselves in the ways that they wanted to was really important. But, you know, it's certainly, you know, festivals like that, cultural festivals have long um, been the source of criticism for many political activists as well who see it as too limited that, you know, well, we all, you know, I think many of us here, you know, love dance, food and culture and these kind of performances. And, you know, there are key parts of who we are, but they certainly don't define all of it and for me much like Nina was saying my involvement in Folklorama what I've really come to appreciate along the way is that the shows that people see and consume are such a small fraction of its meaning to the community that actually its meaning is the very acts of coming together over the year planning figuring out how you're going to work through things what type of show you want to put on so while it might look like it's quite similar all the time it really is about connecting with new sets of volunteers with kind of even though the performances look the same, they're new people learning them, they're often deciding what it means in their own kind of place, whether they're first, second, third generation, newer immigrants, what's their relationships. And so I've come to appreciate that Folklorama is actually more about community building. And so what makes me particularly sad is for our community, Folklorama is a moment where we draw a much broader base of volunteers than we do at any other point in the year. And, they're and they come from many different places. And so I'm really sad that we don't have that opportunity, much like we run a street festival and that's also in limbo and that's another place where we draw these. And so it's really, how do you get people together in a kind of community formation? Because it often takes a project. You need a project to figure out to work together. And so, you know, because I agree with Nina that you know, we all celebrate our culture in different ways all the time. And I think the Folklorama as an organization will ensure that those spaces are still there. But I think more about the grassroots moment. So what is, you know, how do we really, you know, strategize and be much more intentional, I think, in about our community formation and what that might look like. I have no answers yet, but that's what I've been thinking about, particularly as we also have to, I think, return to those ideas of anti-racism and why we're involved in these. So what are the messages that we're trying to bring and how do we both, um, you know, I think we talked last time about be co-conspirators with those who are targets of specific moments, but also be responsible and accountable for ourselves and how we form our communities. So those are my thoughts at the moment. Oh, well, they're all great. <laughs> no doubt a great project. Well, and it's true, um, even if you think of it, 
how things like Bokorama, Folkfest, The Fringe that count on so, so many volunteers, how will that look even next year? You know, um, I think we also talked about safety, right? Creating a safe environment. And we hear that whether we're going back to work uh, or anything like that. Primrose, you're joining us today. What are some of your thoughts? Celebrate. I'm sure you've uh, been involved in Folkorama too at some point in time. <laughs> Yeah, I've, um, I'm actually on the production team with the Pearl of the Orient Philippine Pavilion, and I run the cultural display. And I've been involved with them for years. My children dance. So it's, it's very different this year not to have anything to look forward to at the end of the year, because um, I know it's something that my children look forward to. Uh, as a family, we go to Fukurama, we go to all the different pavilions, and I use it as an educational experience for my children so that they could see other cultures, try different foods, uh, and just enrich themselves. And for the Pearl of Orient Philippine Pavilion, that's what I tried to do in the cultural displays. Like I do interactive displays, and I actually like put the costumes on people, let try, people try the instruments. And I feel sad that we're not gonna be able to share that this year and that we're not gonna be able to be that part of the community. Pearl Laurent Philippine Pavilion is one of the most popular pavilions and has been for many, many years uh, with many sold out shows. And I know that the group um, is struggling right now to find their identity and what to look forward to because this was this is something for the kids. We have 128 members that perform and they, they, that's what they look forward to, these kids, these teenagers. Um, and, and I feel bad for them because they, they aren't able to share themselves. Um, they haven't gotten together, like my kids have been struggling because they haven't gotten together with their, their friends in the, in the Philippine group since beginning of March. That was the last time they had seen them. And they don't just learn dance, they also learn some of the language we do. I was supposed to do a theater, um, Oh, uh, theater God. workshop with the students and haven't been able to do any of that and so we're I know that right now they're trying to find other ways to keep the kids engaged they just had a zoom chat with them uh, on the weekend mm -hmm. with the kids but um, my son was even saying that he felt kind of out of touch because they weren't physically doing anything um, so, so, it's, so it's been very strange not to be able to to see all of this like something like Focalorama that is about diversity it's more important than ever yeah. And exactly. It's, it's more important than ever. And this is what we need more than ever. And we don't have it. No, no. I, I mean, I guess, you know, they're doing a lot of these, uh, we can bring Folkorama to your home and, you know, you can have a group perform and have, you know, some food and then have them at your workplace or at school when schools are fully open. Uh, so I guess, you know, they're trying to, you know, keep that kind of going. But I just wanted to quickly ask you, Primrose, because when we first met, um, you talked, even in your, like, your your home life, your, there's cultural differences. Yes. 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 So maybe if you can fill in the other ladies, too, about that. And, and through all of this, how has this been good or, you know, otherwise? Well, uh, my husband, uh, my, my husband is Jewish and I converted to Judaism as well. My, my children are half uh, European, Jewish and Filipino. And um, with, with our cultural differences, we've been, uh, we've been going along, you know, it's been, go been okay, but it was very, very strange this year because we had to celebrate uh, Passover at home 
by ourselves. We had to do that virtually. Um, just even like with the Filipino traditions of like, you normally have noodles with your family. And we haven't, we didn't get to really do that. We didn't have the big family dinner. Um, it's, it's been strange. We've been trying to still be engaged with our synagogue. We're actually quite engaged with the synagogue. My son is having his bar mitzvah this year. He's oh. been having his uh, bar mitzvah lessons virtually. Um, however, the synagogue is closed itself. And we were actually quite involved in the synagogue. Uh, my, uh, my, my, son, my oldest son, he's actually one of the stars in it. They don't do a sermon during the, uh, during the family services. They do a puppet show. And my son plays one of the key characters in the puppet show. Each, and this is every single Saturday for the past three years. And it's, it's just a change, not going to synagogue and not going to synagogue on Saturdays and not going to, to uh, Philippine dance practice on Sundays. Our, our weekends are very cultural and we haven't had that. Wow. Wow. That's so interesting. And Melinda, how are you doing? <laughs> are you, yeah, you're going through a lot too. And, uh, but you know what? I mean, I think all the other entrepreneurs here can, um, can relate this in the non, in the cultural community, sorry, as well as the corporate, we need to pivot. It's just a pivot. I mean, it's okay to mourn what we know as normal. Uh, you can't discount that. It's difficult. But um, it's also, I like to think of it, and maybe it's two rose-colored glasses, Pollyanna, but to think that find an opportunity in all of this, I mean, it's, I mean, I look forward to reading Susie's mom blog soon to see how, how to handle festivals with your children and how to describe that to your children. And I love Primrose's, um, you know, personal experience hearing about her kids. And it's, I mean, I find that not only do our kids need reassurances, but I need reassurance. Um, my peers need reassurance. So I think that's, that's something because sometimes you're just thinking, okay, we have to be strong for the kids. We have to be strong, but it's okay to, to mourn the fact that we won't be able to have folklorama. And yes, we're very privileged that, you know, that we can still do it virtually and everything, but it's okay. It's okay to be grouchy about it, but because it was a lot of hard work that we don't really get too much to show for, but with the Folklorama at home, we do our best to celebrate this province's diversity, this country's diversity, our world's diversity. I mean, as Tina said earlier, you know, we celebrate music, our culture, and our food. Every single pavilion has that. Every, like, that's a common denominator. We all have culture, so we can still share it. It's just going to be a little different, and... Yeah, so that's really my thoughts on all of this. Um, I really just want to keep, um, the, you know, when it talks about Folklorama, Nina and Tina, I want them to kind of, to be more of the spokespeople for it. But yeah, it's just, I'm really appreciating this conversation. And just one more note on Pivot, Hugh Chat, we used to, we used to meet the Hugh crew all together across, across a couch or several chairs. This I'm not, I miss those days, but this is almost even better because you have more people, you're, you've pivoted and look at this, we're 
we're really opening it up and Tracy, thank you. And all of you, the regular panelists, just open this up to even more people to join the conversation. So, yeah. Well, no, I, yeah, I think that's the opportunity for me totally Melinda as I've been able to open it up and meet so many and keep in touch with people that are across the world. Um, Charlotte and, and Kirsten now, uh, and then just tweaking because we're all, we're talking a lot about our kids and everything. And it was mentioned that, uh, someone close to me said, I really, I fear for my kids and their kids are like young teenagers and what kind of world we're going to be leaving them. So I know that's pretty heavy, <laughs> but it was, yeah. And I don't know, is that like something that you, you hear now from parents because you do a lot of peer support? Charlotte? I was waiting to see which one the person was going to take this heavy one. I was hoping she would. You know, one of the things that, that happened, my daughter, my oldest lives in Calgary. And so she sent me a picture yesterday of, look what I'm doing, mom. And she was making signs to go to the uh, protest in Calgary. And my first reaction was, please stay safe. And she's like, mom, it's at 11 in the morning. I'll be safe. But I immediately you know, everything in, in me, Spidey senses, everything was saying, please don't go because I need you to stay safe. And she says, I have to go because I need to, to you know, stand and make a stand. Um, so in that way, the young people are really the ones who are doing the, the protesting that are, that are being um, gentle, but taking a stand, you know, those are the ones who are gonna make a big difference. Um, you know, I, I look back and when we were all growing up and most of us are similar age, well, you know, maybe Tracy and I and, you know, um, sorry, Cynthia, I'm throwing you in that too, because I think we're, <laughs> but I mean, we grew up in the, in those um, years of being very fearful of the world getting blown up um, during a, by missile crisis. So I remember my parents being very fearful of what kind of a world were we going to be raised in and I know that's kind of a little different. I, I also grew up in, in Memphis in the aftermath of Martin Luther King being assassinated and, and racial rioting and, and you know and, and that same fear of what are what are we growing up in as well. And we seem to find the resilience and the strength um, to move on. But I think in this case with what's going on in the States and in Canada as well, um, the young people aren't going to put up with it. And they're the ones who are really coming forward and saying we need to make this change. And all of us who are a little bit older need to stand and support them in this. And I think that's how we're going to come across um, as, you know, as really making a difference. Um, we see this in the mental health world all the time about the white privilege. Um, and in uh, and, and part of our peer training, we, we identify it, we talk about it. Um, we do it through what we call, you know, bias discussion. Um, and when Kirsten and I are working with families, we always are very careful in what we, we say, you know, try this, try this, because in a lot of cases, you know, our address is South Winnipeg. So if we call the police, um, they come. Um, do they treat us a little bit differently? Absolutely. Um, when you have um, a visible minority, um, the color of your skin and you're presenting with mental health challenges, you're treated differently than, than uh, you know, and I hate to say it, a white person, uh, you know, so, so that's hard. And it, it has been a big part of our training for, for years that identifying that. Um, 
Kirsten, do you want to add to this conversation? Um, yeah, I'll, I'll just add a little bit. I, I want to go back to when um, Tracy first opened and, and was uh, putting forth how you're not feeling great. And, and I think everybody on this planet um, right now, especially, um, especially uh, parents, um, are really, really concerned and are not okay. And I think we all have to take a, a moment and realize it's okay to not be okay. Like there's some really scary things going on in the world right now. And when we talk about, um, you know, mental health and what Charlotte and I see a lot of, um, you know, somebody else, I think it was Susie uh, chatting about being an active listener. And that's part of our, our training as well as a, in our peer support training is truly learning those skills to be um, an active and present listener and to really um, not just listen in um, anticipation of what you're going to say next, but to really just pause and take a step back and be, be a true active listener, um, especially when you're, you're uh, listening to someone who's, who's not okay. And how to respond to that, I think Charlotte would agree. agree. We often, um, you know, the first thing that, that you can respond with is, how can I support you with that? Um, how can, you know... And that the conversation will start, and but it's just it's just sharing space with people and um, checking in on people, and uh, being a really good listener in conversations, and knowing that um, you're not alone. A lot of people feel like they're off their their balance, they're off their their center. Um, they they go to bed with a, a heavy heart. They wake up with a heavy heart, and having those conversations with your children. Um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's a different time. I mean, we've got um, civil unrest all over the world. We're in a pandemic. Um, this is, who would have thought? Who would have thought? Yeah. And, you know, just to add another swirl to this conversation, yesterday's training that we're doing for the, um, all the peer workers who are going into the uh, two hospitals, CRC and the Dauphin Hospital, was how do you, maintain your peer support values and everything that where you're being trained when you're there supporting somebody that has a different view to you. And we use the example of what happens if you have to support someone who has racist beliefs that they start to vocalize. And uh, so that was a very interesting training yesterday for these 25 people that are starting work um, because you have your personal beliefs and everything that you stand for. And then here you are trying to maintain a, a neutral stance to support them through their, their mental health. So just something else to think about that, uh, that we're going through too. And one final story I was sharing with you, I, I have a good friend who's one of the best peer workers in our city. She's indigenous. Um, she's my age. She's got a metabolism that we would all kill for. She's skinny, skinny. And I shouldn't say that, but she is. And um, her sister's struggling and, and she called uh, the police for support and she was immediately labeled a crackhead um, given what she looked like. And, uh, and so she called me afterwards to say, okay, what could I have done differently? And, you know, because, you know, she was in a moment of crisis with trying to, to um, be with her sister, um, but she was completely profiled on who she was. So, Wow. Yeah. yeah. 
Do you want to share anything, Cynthia? You've been listening. Yeah, it's, um, you know, it's really interesting with what Charlotte and, and Kirsten were sharing. Um, more than once, um, my, what, today my son's 27, today my daughter's 23 later this month. I've apologized. Um, I don't think in, uh, uh, what was the word Charlotte said, into our age group, um, that, you know, we stood up and did what we could have done. Um, we did at the time, but, you know, certainly apologizing for th this world um, and these challenges that we never really resolve. Um, you know, I think that that um, is something that, again, the youth are showing true leadership in stepping out here. And, you know, really, I, I think back into the world of pride. And certainly in the world of pride, there, there's been this debate, this discussion going on. And it's, well, is pride a celebration or, you know, is it a protest? And I personally think it's both. But the origins of pride itself was the Stonewall riots in New York. And remembering that, you know, here we are 50 years later, um, still challenged with, you know, the work of trying to create a truly diverse, equitable, and inclusive uh, world for those that identify within the LGBT2SQIA plus world. And we're still not there. Um, but also the work that I've done in the women's movement. Um, and I mean, it, it goes right back to first wave feminism. And again, we're still not there. We're still not recognizing the true diversity, equity, and inclusion in all aspects of life. So um, is this the human condition? I don't think so. I think this is the conditions of the more modern world, the last hundred years or so. And it really speaks to a very different world. And I think we're seeing that culminate in all of these tragedies today. Um, and yeah, it, it, it's a struggle to try and stay upbeat. Um, it is a struggle to find the silver lining, the, the upside. But then, you know, there's been lots of upsides since the tumultuous beginnings of many of these movements. And I think we're at a point where we have to go beyond the climb of the movements, but we have to see an evolution um, to deal with this. Whether we're talking, you know, in the various phobias of homophobia, transphobia, biphobia, whether we're talking about racist or xenophobia, it doesn't matter. Um, you know, I would put even, you know, body shaming, you know, within that, like, we have to change. We have to move forward. And this feels like a monumental moment where change can happen from and it's not us making the change we're no longer the leaders it is the youth they own it and they're taking ownership and they're making change and that's why i continue to look at the youth as um they are absolute inspiration to me that is the upside that is the silver lining is that we actually have true leaders in our youth
what do you think, Nina? <laughs> I'm just going to you because I figure you're probably the youngest here. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I'd say that I share a lot of that optimism um, with you, Cynthia and Charlotte, um, about youth taking ownership and youth playing a key leadership role in what's going on right now. It's pretty complex because I also think there is a bit of pessimism in there as well, because although youth are really the ones that are stepping up, um, I don't think that we are completely heard all the time when we do step up, um, especially when politics is a realm that very much excludes youth still. And um, there's a you know greater culture of youth not being fully uh, you know, involved in the political realm. And so I think that it's great to see um, like people my age and people who are younger standing up for really key issues like um, gun control in the States or like Black Lives Matter um, or environmental rights. And youth are often the, the face of those movements because we're the ones that are, you know, going out and striking for our future. But I think that when we talk about the more bureaucratic side of things um, with what's going on in politics, youth are not always the ones that have a say in who becomes elected, what policies get implemented. And there is so much student activism and youth activism that still gets um, you know, placed on deaf ears. So I, I think it's amazing that, you know, we are trying to take ownership because I think that that is what um, we should be moving towards is a future led by the people who are going to live in that future. But it's just really complex and sometimes sad to see that our efforts are not always fully realized. And so I, it's always just a dynamic struggle between, you know, making ourselves heard um, and having us heard, you know, and so, you know, it, this is the right direction but like as like a lot of people have said these movements are you know not overnight sort of things they're really slow processes and things that people have been fighting for you know 50 100 years from today um are you know still not completely realized so yes we're becoming a more progressive society um but we have a lot of work to do and it's important to you know, remember that is that our work is never done because once we think that the work is done, then that's when we stop trying. So for us to keep trying is the best thing that we can do right now um, and just keep trying to make our voices heard as youth. And you have my vote when you run for mayor or for any kind of... <laughs> <laughs> Our first prime minister, okay? <laughs> I okay. I, I just want to do full disclosure. Tina and I were actually Nina's advisors when she was on the Chinese Youth Committee um, in their youth group. So she is just so mature and wise beyond her age. But I think our generation is our job to empower youth, and it's our job to listen and to allow them to to find their way and this is something that i don't want to get too much into it but tina and i for the last two years 
have been advocating for our community's youth. And Tina in particular has been advocating, you know, at the university for beyond the Chinese community. I'm so proud of Tina. She, um, she actually does advocate for a lot of um, LBGTQ and sorry, Cynthia, I'm forgetting the other, <laughs> the other um, letters afterwards, um, community as well. And, and even that community within the Chinese community. So I think what we can all just vow to do is really listen to our youth, make sure that they understand that their opinions are important. They have a voice. So that's all I wanted to say, sorry. <laughs> and I'm gonna add on to that, Melinda, as well, is that, so, you know, sitting on a committee and doing all of these activism things in your youth are great, but also it starts with seeing your parents vote and seeing your parents run for office or being involved in political campaigns for your, for your um, friends and community and getting involved at that level because that's when the, when legislative change happens, that's when actual change can happen. So, you know, what we're seeing right now with what's happening in the States is and I feel like we were told for a long time that everything's okay, everything's just fine, you know, but under the surface, it was always bubbling. It was always there. There were microaggressions all the time. And suddenly we reached a fever pitch where it's no longer, you can no longer say everything's okay because it's just not. And I'm seeing, you know, like my kids age and their generation, all of them are aware of what's happening on social media right now. They're all aware of what's happening in the States right now. And one of the things that I said on my blog last week is that if you have kids, tweens or teens, they know what's happening. You need to talk to them right now about what they're hearing, what they're seeing. And when I say talk to them, I mean listen actually. So ask them what they're seeing, what they're feeling, what they know about the situation. And you need to have that conversation and provide the historical context for what is happening today so that they understand how we got here and how their generation right now through doing things can actually affect change. That is the most important part of what our youth are experiencing right now is that we need to help them become mobilized and understand what their role is in this change as well. Because yes, it is absolutely the youth. And I love Generation Z, Generation Z. They give zero, pardon my French, fucks about any of this stuff. And they will burn it all down and start again. And I'm here for it. I'm totally here for it. <laughs> oh, and Susie, I wanted to ask you, and uh, you'll, I know that you'll have the good answer. What is microaggression? So we had a great conversation about this um, on CGOB this morning. I did a call with them and we basically talked about what that term means and what it can feel like. And um, Dr. Raymond, who is a great guy on social media, Twitter, and a clinical psychologist had a segment before me and he touched on it. And then I kind of answered a bit more of it as well. And part of it has to do with Again, you know, we're all told that it's okay, you're just being sensitive, it's not a big deal, that kind of thing, right? And so it can start with, the question came from a listener actually who texted it in and said, so what's wrong with asking somebody where they're from? Okay, so let's talk about that. The, because it's about the intent behind that question, right? So if I go to a conference where everybody's flown in and I'm traveling there and everyone's asking, hey, like, where are you from, where are you from? That's fine, we are all gonna be answering, I'm from Winnipeg, I'm from Canada, whatever it might be. But the second part of that question, because there's always a second part to that question, is the but, where are you really from? That's the microaggression, okay? Because now you're saying that my first answer wasn't good enough. I'm hiding something. I don't belong here. I'm some kind of other. And you're making it seem 
you're, you're telling me basically that there's something else to that answer. And that is the microaggression because you're taking it as small talk. It's just an innocent question. I'm just asking you where you're from. What's your heritage? What are you, you know, what are you doing here? And to me, that is a different conversation. Again, we talked about degrees of separation too. So if that's a friend or someone I'm getting to know, that's a different context. Okay. But if I'm sitting in a job interview, if I'm sitting in a professional setting and you ask me that question, you have to ask yourself why you're asking that question. What is the first answer that I gave? Why is that not good enough for you? What are you really trying to get to? You're trying to get to where I came from in terms of where my parents came from. Do I belong here? Are they illegal? Am I illegal? Like, what's the point of that question? Those are microaggressions. And those, that's just one example of small, small, quote unquote, things that people present to people of color, women of color, whatever it might be to feign interest when what they're really doing is othering you. And that is not cool at all. Not cool. Wow. Interesting. Um, I'd like to add to that. Um, I really have a problem with the, the terms, where are you from? Um, if somebody is, wants to know where I'm from, I, I answer honestly, I'm from Winnipeg because this is where I was born. But absolutely, the, uh, no, no, where are you really from? Or really, you're not from here. We, where are you really, really from? There's that question just aggravates me so much because it's like, it, that's not what the question is. If you want to know what my ethnicity is, then ask. Like if someone is generally curious what my ethnicity is, then ask that. Don't feign it. Don't, don't say where are you from because you're basically asking why are you brown? Um, and one thing, I had this conversation with my children last year after, uh, after I'd been asked that and I'd come home and I was just angry about it. Um, because uh, I, I was uh, at Shoppers Drug Mart and a busker had ha asked me, oh, where are you from? And I said, from Winnipeg. And he says, no, you're from the Philippines, Mabuhay. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and I just walked away. I was just so angry. I didn't want to engage. Uh, and I came home. I was frustrated. And I talked to my kids about it. And I asked my youngest son, who at the time was seven, I asked him, when somebody asked you, where are you from? What are you saying? He says, from Canada. Because that's all he knows. Because he doesn't understand what the question is. I asked my older son, and he was, uh, he was 10 at the time. I asked him, if somebody asks you, where are you from? He says, from the Philippines. Because he, at 10 years old, he already knew what the question was. And I asked him, who's from the Philippines? Am I from the Philippines? And, it, and, and it's like, no. It's like, because I'm born here. Is daddy from the Philippines? No, because he was born here. Um, what about what? And he says, but Nanai and Tatai, that's what they call their grandparents. Are they, from, they're from the Philippines. I'm like, they've been in Canada <laughs> 1974. Mm -hmm. So you think they're asking you where you're from, from where your grandparents lived in the 1970s? And he's like, cause that's what they want to know. And I'm like, I hope you never answer that way again, because it's so not, that's not it. Right. So Primrose, at 10 years old, your child has already understood the subtext of that question. Exactly. Right? That is a microaggression. That, that a, is a absolutely. Aggression against a child, no less, right? Wow. He's already learned to read that code and understand what's really being asked of him. That's heinous, yes. as far as I'm concerned. Heinous. Horrible. Yeah. So he doesn't say that anymore. 
<laughs> and the thing is too, so, okay, so you talk about like your kids, your, your children are half Filipino, mine are yes. like a quarter, I guess. So right. again, it's about the visual presentation, right? So I get sometimes two people can't tell what I am. So I get the fishing expedition, right? Where they just don't know what they're trying to drive at. And then sometimes they think that I'm indigenous as well. And I love to watch that, watch that person squirm. I'll watch them drive that fishing boat all over the place. And I just sit there and <laughs> just let it happen because the further they go, the stupider they sound. And you know, it's not, it's not up to me to provide education in that moment. Exactly. Can I I've, I've also gotten indigenous um, because my fam my family is from the northern part of the Philippines, and as you know, that is the tribal area of the Philippines and the Cordillera area. And so I've gotten that. I understand that. But what's funny is that I get asked that question a lot. And I asked my husband, because he asked me, he said to me, you know, he just said, is it really that big a deal? And I said, have you ever been asked that question? And he's like, I guess not. No. And it's like, that's what the difference is. I get my asked. Question is, yeah. So do, does your slur change depending on how I present? Like wh which, which way are you trying to go with your aggression? How, how rude and inappropriate do you want to be depending on what you think I am? Right? Yeah. yeah. Not appropriate at all. Can, can I ask a question? I would love Susie's answer on this. Actually, I think all of us would love to go to Susie's school because we learned so much. So I grew up in the States, as you guys know, and, and I'm Canadian by birth. So if you ask an American what they are, they say American first, always. When you ask a Canadian what they are, they don't normally say Canadian first. So just at, wondering what your thoughts are on that. Um, so I do answer Canadian, for sure, always. I've never not said Canadian. Um, unless someone's asking the city I come from, right? That, that's, a, that's a different answer. But uh, no, I always say Canadian. You know, when we travel, I've got the Canadian flag on my luggage, on my, you know, my backpack, all that stuff. I am so proud to display that flag and, and to be Canadian. You know, that my parents chose this place and that I was born here is the luckiest, luckiest straw I could draw. So I'm going to jump in there, Tracy. I think yeah, it's interesting <laughs> when we think about these questions. You know, I grew up, I'm mixed race. And so, you know, this is part of my experience. And I've been listening to all of you talk. And, you know, I'm thinking very much about, you know, I think some of those books that many of us have found formative in the last few years, like Sarah Ahmed's work on living a feminist life and what it means to be seen as being difficult. And I'm often telling the story how, and this goes back to Primrose's story as well, you know, as a child in elementary school in the late 70s and early 80s, we used to always have to do cultural display. And I think this maybe takes us back to, you know, my, my both joy of folklorama and I think what's an inherent critique of the whole system of celebration. Um, and they would tell us to bring a food from our home. And, you know, I inevitably, I, at some point, I would say that my, mo my mother's from Northern England, from a working class family, and I would, I remember saying, I'll bring fish and chips. And the teacher said, you can't do that. And like, and to be honest, my mom was the only person who volunteered at the school. They all knew her very, very well. So, you know, it wasn't, and they said, you can't do that. And I was like, so then I start on, should I bring a pint of, like, should I bring beer? Should I bring, you know, and I just start going through all the most ridiculously essentialist British foods that I can think of. 
And, you know, clearly then they tell my mom this isn't okay. So then my father, my grandparents were from southern China, but my father was born in Burma, which he only spent a very short part of his life because the Japanese occupied Burma and they fled. And then he grew up in India. So, you know, I... Then I would say things and I was like, well, then clearly, you know, being Chinese was what they wanted me to be, but I would refuse to that. And I was like, but I understand how exoticization works. So then I was like, great, I will bring some Burmese food. I had zero context for that. We pulled out some cookbook and created, come up with some recipe that, you know, was not palatable to any of us. My mother made it. <laughs> and we would, I would bring this in year after year. And I would do things. And I can remember, I would pull up the National Geographic and I'd look for the most exotic representations of Burma and I would bring it in. And so, you know, that way of learning to play the game. And, but I think when I think back on these moments, what I'm really troubling in much of this, and I guess this is where, you know, and I think it goes back to Cynthia, some of her opening comments is that, you know, we can see how much race um, really overdetermines an ethnicity, even the way that we either want to empower people or how we organize. Oh, I hope you can still hear me. It says my internet is unstable. And that we assume that people's primary identity is going to be around some kind of race and not around questions of sexuality or class or the various intersections. And so that we often in turn to them, and I love Susie's explanation of microaggressions, but I always just think about how we also already think we know what the hierarchy is for people about where their identity should be. And so, you know, going back to some of Nina's comments about empowering youth and where youth are, I think, you know, the best, you know, I always think we should all, you know, I like festivals because they tell people you can celebrate your identity. But I, you know, for me, it's really saying to people like you can choose them in whichever way and we have to listen to how you want to express them and when and how, and that we really have to kind of open up and explode those spaces and understand how they won't necessarily fit in the constructs that we, you know, we presume that there's kind of a list that we can work through. And, you know, because I, I'm thinking about that particular in this moment and, you know, thinking about our QPOP friends and thinking about what that means in, you know, moments of pride and in the sort of, you know, heightened, heightened racial tensions of places and just, it becomes so much more complicated, but, you know, it is a reminder that for, you know, those of us who've been taught and in many ways we've been taught by people from outside how they view us. So we respond in that way. But again, race and ethnicity aren't always the primary ones, even though it's such a source of microaggression and just racism in the everyday. So I just want to kind of throw that in there. Oh, well, thank you. Yes, we see a lot of nodding heads. Whoa, so very, very heavy subject. Woo. <laughs> and I thought, well, okay, we're going to talk about summer vacation. <laughs> Uh, but maybe we'll leave that to next week. Oh, my goodness. Uh, does anybody else have anything, Cynthia? Yeah, I mean, I completely relate. I've shared in the chat that, you know, um, I am not Canadian by birth. Um, I came to Canada in 1972, and not once have I been asked, where am I from? I mean, talk about privilege. Um, I think at least I'm aware that that's privilege. That's a start. Um, and then it's how I use that. The other one that, you know, as Nina was talking about, you know, I think the two things come to mind um, is, again, for those of us with political privilege to vote and to create a voice is to use privilege to create a space so that youth voices can be amplified. And I would also challenge everyone that what Nina referred to and that we know that these movements take a long time, but 
you know, we were saying that about, you know, uh, the environmental movement. And honestly, I mean, there's no bigger, you know, feminist agenda item than the environment, Mother Earth, right? Mother Earth does not need us, but we need Mother Earth. Uh, how much bigger feminist issue can we have? And yet we found, boy, can the world move really quick under the threat of COVID. And I think that has to be the new benchmark that we expect the world to, to deal with those critical issues that literally talks about our survival and the survival of the planet we live on. At least it's having a chance to heal a bit right now, but oh my gosh, like, um, yeah, we, we need to hold everyone more account, but use the privilege, whichever form we have it, but use it to amplify everyone else's voices who are not being heard, who are not um, experiencing the world as we see it. And I can tell you, moving from a world where I was part of that powerful white male uh, majority of holding power, both financial and, and representative power privilege, into a more marginalized role as a transgender woman. And I can tell you that, oh my gosh, the world sure looks a lot different these days. And I see it with completely different eyes. And it's not that the world changed, it's that I changed and I changed my point of view in order to see it. Wow, well, all I can say, Cynthia, is that we love you for being who you are and courage and courage is too. I mean, and we see that in the youth, the youth have courage because they're young. They're not afraid. As you get older, you learn too much and the fears do start to creep in. But I thank you all, everybody for this conversation. I think before we, before we stop for today, Tracy, I just want to remind people that there is a rally on Friday, June 5th at uh, the legislative building for Black Lives Matter, Justice for Black Lives. And I'm sure they would welcome any allies to show up and be there. Thank you. At what time again? It says 6 p.m. Yeah, and that's this Friday. Correct, June 5th, 2020. Well, hopefully we'll see some of you out there, safe distancing, of course. But be safe, be kind to each other, and be kind to yourself too. So. Um, we'll see you all next week, next Tuesday. Now, hands up, I don't know, who has watched the Epstein on Netflix miniseries? Nobody. Yeah, don't watch watched it. No, I watched it. Yeah, no, it's... Terrifying. So, yeah, um, so I'm working on inviting Joy Smith back uh, next Tuesday. Um, she's actually, they're actually in this kind of uh, drive uh, to you know, get money for their organization. But um, yeah, it was just very, it was heart-wrenching. It was with everything that's going on um, that this also is a huge thing and a huge problem that's not going to go away. And I know that Kristen and Charlotte can weigh in heavy on this too. Primrose, hopefully you can join too. Melinda and Tina and Nina. Yes, and I would love more young young people like Nina to join, so Nina. And I'm gonna say as well that it's never too early to start talking to your kids about consent and what sex trafficking is. Yeah. Truly. Yeah. So on that great happy note. <laughs> <laughs>
can, can we just say self-care after this? Because and whatever that looks like for you guys and remembering that we only have control over ourselves in this moment because we, we covered a whole bunch of topics and, uh, and just whatever self-care looks like for you. So please remember. Thank you, Charlotte. Well put, well said. On that note, self-help, self-presence for everybody. See you next Tuesday. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of iLikeQ.com. Podcast distribution from the Sound Off Media Company. Hi, I'm Mercedes Nickel, four-time Winter Olympian and host of Dropping In, a podcast with Mercedes. This is a podcast where I interview a bunch of different people. I get the good, the bad, and the ugly, as well as I share my stories along the way. Now you can drop in at droppingin.com or subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and YouTube. I'll see you soon. Do, did, will the story of people podcast is now available on the crier media network the first five episodes are here and feature some incredible guests that fit into one or all three of those categories ready tara sloan from the san jose sharks undercurrent podcast at nbc sports marianne iveson from iveson voice and the let's take this outside podcast to talk about the world of outdoors as well as voiceover land Ariana Hunsicker, future Canadian Paralympic swimmer, already winning tons of awards for this country. Scott McGregor from the Hot Wallet podcast to dumb down the world of crypto, Bitcoin, and NFTs so you don't have to. And Jackie Holowaty from Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle, Washington, the first net zero carbon certified arena on the planet. Wherever you get your pods, wherever you watch your pods, and on the Cryer Media Network. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.